Today, I'm going to change it up a little bit. My preamble will be a mini lesson in simplification of your life. Doesn't everybody want that? But sometimes we get caught up in business. We implement these new initiatives. For my world, there are lean, agile, and Six Sigma initiatives. My guest, Lisa Bodell, and I talk about this a little bit in the upcoming interview and sometimes in our I don't know, best plans of trying to simplify our lives, we actually instill complexity. So think about it. <laughs> Leaders, how can we make our lives easier? Listen now, here's the quick lesson. Lean email. I can't take credit for this. Jörg Munsing, my sensei from my lean learnings, taught me this. If you want to have a very efficient communication that I promise you will get you an immediate reaction, take note. In the subject line, put the action that you require or the answer that you need. Start it out with, please respond. Information only, action needed. Then in the first line of your email after you say, dear such and such, and yes, you can put a cordiality in there as well. I need a decision by 10 a.m. on Friday in order to move the project forward. Stop. Then (laughs) proceed with only two lines in your most concise ability to be able to explain why you need the decision and how it will help others. And then if you have anything more than maybe three, five bullets maximum, please say see attached details in the attached document. And I promise you, if you say action required and leaders start seeing that your emails are so concise, lean, and simple, you will get an action much sooner. But so my conversation with Lisa Bodell is amazing. We talk about organizations, behaviors, complexity. You don't want to miss this one. It is so action-packed with information. Let's listen. I think the lean professionals are excellent, and I really believe in the methodology. But to me, there's a few different things where I found lean and agile or Six Sigma really work are in bigger projects that are in the sphere of influence in an organization. They cross boundaries. But so much of the work that drowns us is everyday tactical in our sphere of control, work that we do every day in our teams. How often are people going to put their email through agile? How often are you going to put a meeting through agile? It feels like overkill. So there are simple behavioral changes that can get time back without having to go through a rigorous process on everyday things. This is meant to be a, a thing in sphere of control, whereas agile and those types of things, which are incredibly important and valuable, to me are more in that sphere of influence. And in fact, we've seen within some organizations where they were so six sigma to death that it became too complex. They would go through an efficiency effort and it would take away so much time. And then they would start drowning in the everyday work. So it had kind of a unintended consequence. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, my name is Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I want to thank you for joining me on another episode 
of the Drop-In CEO Podcast, where I have the opportunity to speak to amazing leaders week after week and share their insights with you. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, so we can continue to bring you great programs. And today, my guest is Lisa Bodell. She is the CEO of FutureThink and ranks amongst the top 50 speakers worldwide. She is the best-selling author of Kill the Company and Why Simple Wins. And also, she is a global leader on simplification, productivity, and innovation. And she inspires many with her keynote speeches. She has an amazing resume. I won't take away her thunder, but it is simply my pleasure, Lisa, to invite and welcome you onto the show. Oh, thanks, Deb. Thank you for the kind intro. So the reason why I am so excited for this and I am turning to my listeners now is that when I came to know Lisa, she, I guess, it basically goes against the status quo. She gets leaders to think differently. It's about innovation, disruption, and simplification because sometimes the world is so complex and the simplest solutions are just that simple. And so I cannot wait to learn from her as well as bring her insights to you. So Lisa, it is my pleasure to introduce you and ask if you could share about yourself personally, your business journey, and the work that you do now. Sure. Well, I'm coming to you from New York. We are headquartered here in the Chrysler Building, which is where Future Thanks headquarters and staff are. And we are, we're privileged, right, to just have a really cool team, a really cool office, and a really cool business. I've had this business for 20 years. And it was a lot of strategic luck starting it. I wanted to be on my own and it turned then into a business. And my goal when I originally started was to teach people creativity, how to embrace change and creativity, because I had always worked in creative agencies and realized that it's not just for a single group of people that quote go to art school, but everyone should be that way. So I set off on a journey to do that. I started by creating a whole bunch of like trend products and creativity products. And what I realized was two things. One, I was a good teacher. And people want to be led or ignited rather than just self-learning all the time. Sometimes they need a nudge. And that's how the training part of our business got born. So we, we focused on creativity and innovation. And then lo and behold, we realized something was wrong about 10 years into the journey. And what was wrong was we were teaching people innovation and how to change, but they weren't as engaged as they used to be. And what we realized was, thankfully, it was not the content or the trainers. It was that people were too overwhelmed to even think about doing more. And so that's where the simplification journey began. You know, everyone talks about the front end of innovation being about coming up with ideas or looking for trends. And really the front end of innovation is getting rid of unnecessary work. So you can create the space for thinking to happen. People don't have time to think. They are burned out and they wanna be doing more meaningful work, but they can't seem to get to it because they're drowning in complexity. So we will, we come in and we help them get rid of that stuff. and then help them better embrace change after that. So that's what my team does. And it's very cool. We work with some of the biggest brands and uh, I have a great team I'm proud to lead. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. And you really, really got me thinking here because again, this is if nothing else, it's you and I talking right now and our listeners just happen to be a fly on the wall, but you brought up something really interesting. I mean, I love that thing about leading and igniting because sometimes People just want to be told what to do, but at the same time, we as thought leaders have to inspire because sometimes the answers and solutions are in ourselves. It's about us helping to bring it out. But I'm curious, you did say 10 years in, you pivoted, you made a change. You said that they were overwhelmed. What was it? Was it somebody said something to you? You saw the writing on the wall. What was it that you saw? 
I just want to go deeper there. Well, it started during the whole kill the company phase, when I, which was my first book about how to challenge the status quo. And, you know, we were on a journey. We were down doing some futuring work with a manufacturing company. It was in Raleigh, Durham. And we had a big group of leaders in the room. And we were there to teach them about the future and how to innovate, which is a really cool, fun job, right? But for some reason, we realized we couldn't get these leaders engaged. You know, they were kind of on their phones. They they weren't interested in brainstorming. And I, I decided to have them take a break during this training session. And I pulled the leader aside that had hired us to come in. And I literally looked at him and said, what's going on? Because I thought we were going down in flames. And he looked at me like I had three heads. He said, what do you mean? I said, no one's, no one's engaging. And he said, oh, you know, just kind of blew it off. He said, it's not that people don't want to innovate. It's just they don't think they're empowered to do it. They don't really know how. They don't have the time. And so really clearly what he was saying to me was he's going through the motions. He's giving them an opportunity to do it. But they really didn't believe coming out of it that they would be able to get past anything but business as usual. And when I would ask them, so what do they spend their days doing? Like, what's holding them back from innovating? The answers weren't, I'm scared. I don't know how. I, you know, I'm not good with creativity. The answer was, I spend my time doing meetings and emails. I don't have time to do more. So, you know, I thought, God, how can I teach them innovation when all they're doing all day is meetings and emails? They got to get, they don't even have the time. So that's how that was kind of born is that people, they didn't even realize why they were being held back. They thought it was them. But a lot of it is um, kind of the, the beast that we become a slave to. We, we really put a lot of self-imposed unnecessary complexity into our day. And if we can empower leaders and teams to get rid of, I think they'll, one, be more satisfied at work, but two, they'll focus on more important things like proactively innovating. So I hear this all the time that technology is has enabled us to be more efficient or not. It's enabled us to do more, more activity feeding into the overwhelm versus things that are of a creative nature or getting you to think or ask the questions. And what you unfolded here was very interesting is that, yes, giving people new tools and technology and information is not going to help them to get better. But we as leaders, and I talk about this in the CEO's Compass, is we as leaders have to be sponsors of the people to be able to achieve their highest potential. And we ask them questions, well, what stands in the way? or what do you need to be more successful, they might have said, I just don't have the time. Okay, then what can I do? And that goes into a deeper discussion. But then into your line of work, what can we do to make it more simple? Well, so the the interesting thing about that, though, is when people think about they use technology, right? Tech is kind of the solution or the crutch, right? So, oh, you just need to, to be able to work better or faster or be more productive. Here's an app. Here's a system. Here's a process. First of all, if people ask me if technology helps or hurts people, the answer is yes. And the other piece is, I think we have to stop thinking about, uh, when I say simplicity, people think I'm talking about productivity. Now, they're different. You know, the goal is not for people to just be able to do more, more, more with their time and to be effective or to manage their time better. Quite frankly, if someone came to me and said that, I would be very offended. I am incredibly productive. I am very good with my time and know how to manage it. But when people just keep piling on more, that's not, you know, what do I do about that? So to me, this is not about time management. This is about being more intentional with our time. And that's different. So it's not trying to do more with our time. It's being more intentional about how we spend it. And I think we need to shift that. So leaders are just looking at it more like profit. I'm looking at it as a cultural and behavioral change, right? This is about 
Time is a non-renewable resource. We will never get it back. We have to learn to say yes with intention, no with purpose, and be able to focus on things that are meaningful, not more. You know, and that's exactly what I've seen in myself and other people that I coach and mentor. It's giving people the tools they need for good decision logic. So as we get better, as we are more visible, people draw us into more activity. We get more emails, we get more invites and tasks that we need to do. We feel like we're a superhero, superwoman, superman, and we should be able to do more because we've got all this technology. But then I find that then people lose themselves. They lose the ability to make good decisions. And I leverage the Eisenhower matrix, what is urgent, important. Yes, that's where they should put their value into But if it's not important for them to do it, can you delegate it? Not urgent, not important. How do you even just delete it from the universe? It is so hard for people to make those decisions. But unless you recognize somebody struggling with that and offering them some of those tools, they're going to burn out and fail. Those are ways to simplify. Yeah, I would also argue too, a little different on that matrix too, which is we all talk about urgent and important, but I'm trying to get away from the urgent. Because what that says to me is you want to be you know, agility, resilience, you want to be prepared to react. And I, I think what that does is that just says we always have to be like at the ready, right? And not have control of our time. What I'm trying to get at is be proactive. I want to drive my time, right? Not be agile and respond to everything and not have to only do what's urgent. Because sometimes, frankly, the not urgent important things like strategic planning are more important. Okay. And that's why I am inspired. Such an amazing point. So I love what you're doing to get leaders to think differently. So let's, let's come into a little bit though, then to the companies that you have been able to help, or maybe the companies that you haven't helped yet. What are they feeling? What is the problem they're facing? Who is that ideal leader that you want to connect with? Because they realize something's got to change. We got to do something different. What do they look like? What pain are they feeling? First of all, they're drowning in mundane tasks. They're not being able to get to work that's important. They probably have a lower job satisfaction as a result of it. They feel like they're drowning in meetings and emails. I mean, this pretty much encompasses about 80% of the workforce that I'm describing. But the difference of the person that the buyer I want to go for are the people that recognize it's a problem and are ready to change it. The more ideal person on top of that is the person that looks at it as a cultural shift, not just an efficiency effort. Because the thing about simplicity is it's very, the language is important, okay? So, for example, it's not about teaching people how to better prioritize. It can be, but the point being is that when they constantly get stuff dumped on them, right, it's not necessarily their issue in terms of prioritizing. We haven't defined what the meaningful work is, right? The other thing that I think is interesting is when they think of simplified, the, they mix it up with being organized, And just because it's organized doesn't mean it's simplified, right? People default to a process. And that can sometimes just add complexity in with the best of intentions versus something that's simplified. You see what I'm saying? So I think what we want to do is we want to look at work and figure out how can we make everything as simplified as possible, get rid of anything that's unnecessary, define what meaningful work is, and make sure that this is a cultural and behavioral shift. Leaders that align with that they make it stick for the long term. So I have a question for you because I also have training in being a lean professional, operational efficiency, looking for value add, removing non-value add. How are you different than one of those continuous improvement lean professionals that one would hire to make things simpler, better, faster, cheaper? 
Well, I think the lean professionals are excellent and I really believe in the methodology. But to me, there's a few different things where I found lean and agile or Six Sigma really work are in bigger projects that are in the sphere of influence in an organization, right? They cross boundaries. But so much of the work that drowns us is everyday tactical in our sphere of control, work that we do every day in our teams. So you can put, I mean, how often are people going to put their email through agile? How often are you going to put a meeting through agile? I, it feels like overkill. So there are simple behavioral changes that can get time back without having to go through a rigorous process on everyday things. This is meant to be a, a thing in sphere of control, whereas agile and those types of things, which are incredibly important and valuable, to me are more in that sphere of influence. And in fact, we've seen within some organizations where Take 3M, they were so Six Sigma to death that it became too complex and people were drowning in complexity and they would go through an efficiency effort and it would take away so much time. And then they would start drowning in the everyday work. So it had kind of a unintended consequence is what I'd say. Very interesting. So now I'm curious, let's just take this into an actual example because I find stories are such a good way for people to relate. So when we think about you were invited into an organization or situation where I don't know, they were ready for change, but maybe they struggled with it in the beginning. And how were you able to bring them forward to realizing the innovation, the simplification, and have a better culture and a better result? You can frame it with the leadership that it'll be a, you know, a cost savings when you simplify. The beauty of simplification is it really costs you anything and you get results right away, whether it's time, money, impact, retention, et cetera. So, you know, if the hurdle, if there is one, is, you know, is this going to get me results and time and impact and money? The answer is yes. But then once I go through a couple exercises, which I'll share, they realize the larger systemic behavioral cultural impact that they get. So, for example, when we worked with Pfizer and we were down, we were I was doing Albert's annual leadership meeting. He's the CEO. And they have their top 800 down there. And they we were talking about simplicity. Well, I don't like to do things that are just theoretical. So I, I got done in terms of inspiring everyone around what simplicity can do. And then I broke them out into rooms. And I said, we're going to do a little focus on what I call the, you know, the ugly stepchild to simplicity. And that's we're going to kill complexity. And we're going to do it by doing an exercise called Kill a Stupid Rule. And so we broke everybody out by functional teams because we share the work we do every day is where our shared rules and beliefs are. Otherwise, you're going to have people complaining about procurement and legal and HR and all that stuff. And that's not in their sphere of control. So we broke these this 800 into groups and we said, we now have an hour and we're going to teach you how to kill stupid rules. And we want you to identify the rules that are holding you back from being more effective, efficient, innovative, et cetera. And in each of the rooms, remember, this is over 800 people in less than an hour. We identified thousands of rules because each group identified, you know, a few per person. We killed over a hundred and we got back what they estimated in an hour to be the equivalent of a quarter of a million dollars just on simple things. And what was interesting was what people came up with were not rules. What they said held them back were things like meetings, reports, CCing people on too many emails. They were things that, you know, when Albert, the CEO looked at the crowd later, he said, what are you, are you waiting for me to tell you you don't need to have 60 minute meetings? Like, do you need me to approve a 30 minute meeting? What, what's stopping you? And what that said is that sent a signal to people that, you know, first of all, we have to get into our heads that it's, it's not about more, you know, we should value less. And there are simple things we can do to weed the garden all the time that can quickly get us time back for better work. And it's in our control. We just don't think about it. So I want to go there. 
I love this conversation. So thank you so much, Lisa, for this. So obviously, we laid out the palette of all the rules that just didn't service anymore. Slice it. And so that's great. Quick win, high five. We walk out of the room, we gain back a few hours, a few, you know, millions of dollars. But then what was the culture that at least imparted those rules? Because unless you stop the bleeding, the culture, the behaviors that created those drains, those time sucks as you talk about it, what were the root causes that all those rules existed? I'm curious. Well, that's part of the exercise, which as you can see by the types of rules where the ish- complexity issues are. Like, are, are most people complaining about decision-making or lack of it? Is it reporting structure? Is it emails, right? Is it daily operations? And you can quickly pinpoint, and they're different between groups, by the way, because every group has its own culture. And then what you do is you talk about what makes those behaviors happen. And you want to talk about what are the behaviors that are creating this complexity and what are the behaviors that could actually help instill simplicity. So for example, maybe people are using too much jargon that creates complexity. And we want to stop using jargon. Or maybe we want to start saying no. So we talk about different behaviors and we we have a whole workshop on simplification behaviors. The key is to agree and start on one that you want to change and then add on more. So it might be saying no to meetings. It might be approving people to have one level of approval for decisions and defining what those decisions are or which ones they aren't, right? So these kinds of things are, they're not easy to do, but they're they're simple once someone lays them out for you. Then it's a matter of having the time to focus on it. That's key, right? Because you can, the, the good news about simplification is everybody wants to do it. They, I mean, you're, no one's going to argue with you. The bad news is they will really want to simplify and they can, it can be chaotic. They want to simplify so much. So sometimes you got to have people focus on one thing at a time. So all of this is so simple. The act of simplification. Obviously, they need somebody like you to inspire or get them to stop doing the other stuff. But why is it so hard for an organization not to see that this is obvious and start doing it on their own? Again, you have great talent. I know you serve and help people. But why don't leaders already do this on their own? Why can't they see this as a problem? Because I think that they fall into the trap that they're going to solve it through process or technology. I mean, it's the same thing. It's like when HR teams are like, well, you know what? We're going to start really being able to analyze more data. You don't need to analyze, you know, just because you analyze data doesn't mean people are happier at work. There's systemic behavioral changes that need to happen. And until we can do that, I don't think people, people fall on the easy crutch, right? Which is process and tech. So I think that the other thing is the tone comes from the top. And once people realize it's not just financial, but cultural, the leaders need to exemplify those behaviors. If they don't do it, people won't do it, period. Because a lot of stuff is driven by fear, right? That's human behavior. We're social animals. (laughs) I mean, so much of this is I also talk about this in the CEO's Compass, your guide to get back on track. We talk about solving problems, people, process tools. We throw technology, resources, processes to fix something. And yes, there are so many problems out there that we can fix with this. But I went into a small company once and I said, okay, where's your process? How do you communicate the daily work and the activities? What's your system? What's your process? I coming from big company experience. And he says, we just talk to each other each day. We just talk to each other. We align on the important things and go. We don't need a system or process for which we disseminate information and communicate. And it's so simple. And it it just hit me. And it's like, that goes to the culture, the culture of a small company where everybody has their back. They have to survive. They have to be very simple, streamlined and efficient because it's all 
rests on their shoulders. And then when we get to the big companies, there's all this protocol. I love the big companies because of all the resources that you have at your disposal, but it can get very challenging to get something done. Question. You also speak a lot. I'm, I'm very envious. I also aspire to be a great thinker and great speaker as well. But I'm just curious about an experience where when you go into a room, you deliver your inspiring information. How have you perhaps inspired somebody along the way? Well, the good news is, is that I, I feel like it's, it's nice because people reach out to me and they tell me. And it's what I like about that is it's, you know, it's not about going into a room and about how many people are excited and clap and applaud and all that. That's fine. You know, people are polite if they do that. But when they write me later and say, I just want to let you know that I did the kill the company exercise with my team and it was transformative. Or I just want to let you know that I tried doing one year email tips, bottom line up front, and it's completely changed how our team communicates. So I, you know, it's anecdotal and it's impactful. I think that's been really helpful. The other thing I realize is not necessarily when I'm doing a virtual speech, because then I get the anecdotes in the chat, which is great. But it used to be when I would get off stage, and we're starting to go on stage again, which is fun, that people would come up to me after and, you know, they kind of hug me like a therapist. <laughs> you know, like it wasn't that I had necessarily, they were going to try the things I just said on stage, but they felt like they were finally seen and heard. Like someone understood, you know, and that there was a light at the end of the tunnel that they could actually try these things themselves and not have to get like, you know, a big procurement thing going to get someone to come in and consult on simplification. You know what I mean? It's there are simple things they could do every day. And it was very um, hopeful for them. And I like that. That's hope is good. And I appreciate you sharing that because, again, you're an amazing thought leader speaker. But I also like to draw out where you get your joy because that's what keeps us going in the work that we're doing. So I also want to draw out of you just some thoughts. You've had the great good fortune of working with Google, Cisco, some major, major entities, and thank goodness they have brought in your skills. But let's think about maybe the small and medium-sized business. Maybe they haven't gotten complex yet, and they're listening, or even an emerging leader that maybe is a future CEO. What are some things they can do now to keep things simple or prevent us from getting so complex and worn out and preventing us from doing the innovation we should be doing? What can they do now? Well, it's interesting because small and medium businesses don't have it as, I would say small businesses don't have it as complex, right? As large businesses, medium businesses are well on their way, right? Gets entrenched pretty early. You know, I, I run a, you know, my business is small. We're about 20 people, you know, compared to larger organizations like Google. And we have complexity. And I don't even realize it. We do kill a stupid rule every year. And I'm shocked at the amount of rules my team comes up with that I put in place that are stupid, right? I mean, we do it and you have to constantly weed the garden. So with small businesses, the key is to put some mechanisms in place to get rid of unnecessary work. And the other thing is to define meaningful work early on so people are intentional with their time. The advantage small businesses have, they don't have the capital advantage, but they have the advantage of focus and speed. And those are really easy to lose because you want to say yes to everything. You want to make money. You're probably nervous about where your next paycheck or whatever revenue is going to be stable. And so you take on things that you might normally not or weren't your original intention when you started the business. If you can keep focus and speed going through simplicity, I think you'll be more successful in the long run and you'll be able to better compete. So that's very helpful because I am, I would say, a small business right now. Love what I'm doing. I can see the end game. But even now, as my activity increases, building out the brand, you got me thinking. 
I'm doing a lot. I have some support now doing some of those things I shouldn't be doing, but I wonder were all those tasks necessary? I'm starting to question my processes already. Is it a two-touch process or could it be a one-touch process? Is the process even necessary? You got me thinking too. Yeah, I think the, <laughs> the good news of COVID, and I think there were many, I mean, obviously horrible things, but I think the great thing that COVID did is it made people realize, I challenged their assumptions and all the things that they were pushing back on before that they were forced to change, they realized, huh, I can do it. So for example, you know, we have, we're a training business and I do keynotes and that basically, that goes away overnight. So we pivoted and we became virtual and we've been trying to get people to do virtual training for years, but quote, nothing could replace in-person training. You can't do virtual learning. Surprise, <laughs> you can. And in fact, now people want that more than in person. So it challenged assumptions and it made people uh, have less fear and get them to embrace change. That's good. So for whoever is listening right now, if you wanted to have a direct conversation or ask them a few questions, what would you ask them now or what pain might they be feeling that maybe if they are having these struggles or pain points, they might want to connect with you? What would you say to them right now? What are their pain points? How would I ask them in terms of what their pain points are and figure that out? Yeah. Like, what are they feeling? If Like, what is a question of like, okay, if you are starting to see people calling out or people getting sick or, you know, they're missing meetings, et cetera, if you're starting to feel this kind of pain. What are the signals? Yeah. Yeah. So we talk about that a lot. Like, what are the kinds of things you see? Like, um, a, a couple things are, obviously, your growth slows. People aren't as engaged in meetings. They don't come up with ideas. They don't try uh, to do things beyond their normal job routine. They really aren't. Uh, well, there's not just absenteeism, there's presenteeism, which is a little different, right? They're, they're showing up, but they're not showing up. People don't, I don't want to say don't argue, but they don't, um, there isn't healthy debate anymore. And what I mean by that is people are, you know, after a while you get tired of beating your head against a wall. And so really now they're just showing up and going through the motions. That's a big red flag. That's super painful as I listen to you. And I have seen that. And you do the best you can to jump up and down, inspire, let's go out for lunch. It's not really going to change how people feel and how they respond. Yeah, they become resigned. I mean, we talk about there's three different kinds of cultures. You know, I like to say there's the light bulb, which is the healthy culture, where it's ignited, it's inspired people. They ask a lot of questions. They want to come up with new ideas that aren't even part of their job and solve the problem. There's also the sticks of dynamite. That's the bad culture, which is... I mean, people know it. They they know their boundaries. They know not to speak up. It's negative. They talk down to. Those are obvious cultures. And I would argue they're probably better, even though a dynamite culture isn't good. But you know what you're dealing with. The problem is the in-between, which is the dimmer switch. And this is the, the issue where people, you know, they know something's wrong, but they're going to put up with it. Maybe it'll change. You know, I'll, I'll just try something different. Well, let's see what happens. Someone else will fix it. And all of a sudden the light comes up slowly. And that's where you go, oh my God, now we have this huge competitor that came out of nowhere. How did that happen? Because you weren't paying attention. It was there all along. And those are the majority of corporations. And I think those are the ones that have the most to worry about because, you know, things that are complacent, are usually complex and complacent ones are the ones where it's not obvious people are about to leave the company and you really get caught with your pants down. You know, you're probably embarking as a leader on something new because you think everyone's going along and meanwhile, everyone quits. At least at the stick of dynamite company, people know that things are bad 
and uh, they probably have better contingency planning or they don't care. So great insight, great forethought for a leader to be thinking and look out over the landscape and say, do you have a dimmer switch, some dynamite, or just the light bulb? So I love that analogy. So we have to bring this to a close, but you have brought so much insight and inspiration to me during this conversation. But I know people are going to want to check out your work, learn more about what you do, hopefully even engage with you. How best can they do that? Oh, great. Well, I, I would tell them to come to futurethink.com and they are they can learn about the company and what we do. But more importantly, you know, we're about helping people reach their potential. And we've got a lot of free resources there that they can just take, download and use. And I invite people to do that. You can also find me on LinkedIn and uh, you can also see me on Twitter at Lisa Bodell and uh, happy to engage with you in any of those places. All right. So you have been an amazing amount of energy, really engaging my mindset a little bit to think and maybe do something differently with my business before it gets too big and too complex. I do wish you continued success. Thank you for being a great guest. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.